Hi, this is David Yaz at the Boston Podcast Network, hoping you are staying safe and healthy during this period of precaution over the coronavirus. It's difficult to connect with your clients and contacts in a period such as this, but here we continue to produce podcasts that allow you to connect with the people that you want to reach. You've got a rapt audience like never before. People are home, they're listening, and they're waiting to hear from you. We can create a professional podcast with a quick turnaround and do the whole thing remotely so you don't have to leave your home. Get in touch with us at pod617.com. From the Pod 617 Studios in Westwood, Massachusetts, it's the Boston Podcast with David Yaz and a rotating cast of characters from Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. This is our f***ing city. Yes, sir, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, all the ships at sea, lovers, muggers, thieves, welcome to the Boston Podcast. This is Dave. I hope your quarantine is going well. If um, you'd like to start up a podcast in the spare time that you have, that's what we do at the Boston Podcast Network. I invite you to go to the website, pod617.com. You could be the next big podcast star. We'll send you out a quality USB mic, and you can get started right away. Everything is remote. We've been doing it remotely for a long time, way before this pandemic thing, so we're pretty good at it, pod617.com. And if you want to be a guest on this show, just email me, david at pod617.com. We're featuring a lot of business owners and others who want to keep the word out there that they're still open during these unprecedented times. Uh, We also will feature the likes of authors. And happily, luckily, um, we have an author here today. Her name is Erin Hatton. She's a professor of sociology at the University of Buffalo. She's written what looks to be a very interesting book called coerced. Don't we all feel a little coerced these days? Anyway, I want to welcome Professor Hatton to the show. Oh, there's the great applause. Great, great, great. Professor, how, how is your, uh, how's your pandemic going? Oh, you know, uh, it's both hard and easy to complain these days, but considering I'm still gamefully employed, I don't have much to complain about. You academic types, you have all the luck. So, You've, you've written a book, uh, which is called Coerced, and pieces together, it sounds like, stories of different sects of employees, prisoner laborers, graduate students, welfare workers, and college athletes are all coerced in some... That's a, I'm going to provide this teaser for our listeners, and you're going to fill it in. But tell us um, what those four groups have in common, and maybe tell us what the inspiration for the book was. Yeah, sure. So... In this book, I do look at these four really, really, really different groups of workers. Um, Prisoners who work behind bars, welfare recipients who have to work in order to receive um, basic cash benefits and utility vouchers and so on. Um, Student athletes, uh, specifically Division I college football and basketball players, as well as um, graduate students and the scientists who work in their advisors' labs. Now, Let me just say right here that I don't say that these workers are the same in virtually any way. Like graduate students are vastly different from prisoners. It would be ridiculous to say that they're the same. Um, But I do argue that they, um, in the work that they do, experience a similar type of coercion Mm -hmm. that's different from the type of coercion that we normally talk about. I mean, this coercion is kind of on the front of our minds these days during this pandemic uh, questions about whether 
these frontline so-called essential workers who are essential um, are coerced to work because they have so few other options in order to feed their families. And that is definitely coercion. Um, what are some So what are some of you said first-line workers, right? What, what are the types you're talking about? They're frontline service workers. So not only healthcare workers, although they are clearly absolutely essential in this crisis, but also these other service workers who were not until this virus um, pandemic considered all that essential. So these are warehouse workers. These are food delivery workers. These are grocery workers who are keeping things going for us um, so that, say, people like me can work from home. Right. And and exhibiting, in many cases, real courage. It, it's, it's an unlikely dynamic, right, when the heroes have become the people that deliver food from Grubhub, right, and the Amazon delivery people. But I'm impressed that, I mean, I mean, I guess what are they going to do? What else are they going to do? Maybe that's the point of your book or professor, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so that, so that, that's sort of spirit runs through your book about people that are just kind of forced into this thing, I guess. Well, sort of yes and sort of no. I mean, one thing I do, I take a little bit of issue with that hero rhetoric because we, we tend to end up paying these people in rhetoric rather than wages and protections that they need. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do think that they are exhibiting real bravery, but often they have so little choice that it's that they just don't have a choice. It's a false choice. They have to feed their families, so they have to put their lives on risk because we're not giving them the support that they otherwise need, like, I don't know, a universal basic income or access to health care without employment. So it is a coerced choice for sure. Now, the workers I examine in my book um, are coerced in a different way. Mm-hmm. So it's less about economic coercion because they're typically not paid in wages per se. Um, but I talk about the types of power that their bosses wield over them. So, so it's more than just like firing them and taking away their wages, which is huge, which is a, a really strong form of coercion. But their bosses have different types of coercion. So um, in prison your boss can put you in solitary confinement, cut you off from your family, friends, socializing, decent food, freedom of movement, recreation, everything, um, if you don't comply with any order on the job. Like that is really expansive power over a worker. Um, So that's the type of power that I'm talking about. It's a different form of coercion than than most regular workers face. Mm -hmm. Calling the um, food service people heroes rhetoric professor i mean i think they're heroes and that's why i'm sending my thoughts and prayers out to them i'm being ironical if you hadn't noticed um but i i hear you i hear you loud and clear let's talk about um uh well if you don't mind i'll pick out the sports the college athletes in particular because that that's a debate that has raged for years and years and years um and going back to the moment where I'm going to forget which college athlete it was, but there was sort of a, a milestone moment when a college athlete, it might've even been basketball player, Ed O'Bannon. I'm not sure. But anyway, he went to the student center to buy a, a he barely had enough money for a burger and noticed his Jersey was selling for like 1799 or something. So the, you know, the trade-off people have always said, well, they get a degree that they might not have otherwise gotten, but many of these, you know, 90 whatever percent of these kids are not going to make the NBA. They won't make a buck in basketball. And what good is their, is their degree really? Um, so how has that debate progressed over time? And tell us, if you, if you can, how it's discussed in your book as, as people that are being coerced. 
Yeah, so in the case of student athletes, um, it's a really complicated and interesting issue. Um, it's absolutely the case that um, this, they are in many ways, well, not all of them, but many of them are in very elite positions, right? Some might think that they're living the dream, um, playing at this elite collegiate level. They get, some of them, not all of them, but they get free education. Um, some believe that they're treated like kings and perhaps queens on campus. Um, they get a lot. But one of the things I talk about in this book is how even this rhetoric of privilege, how privileged they are, is used to kind of silence their complaints, silence their claims to be workers. Because in point of fact, they are laboring um, for the economic benefit of other people. They, as you pointed out, they can't themselves, although now this is under litigation in the state of California, but so far, they can't themselves make a dime right. off of their athletic ability, uh, but other people can. Um, and so I do conceptualize the, the work that they're doing on the courts and in the football arena as labor. They're, they're performing work. They have to be there, and they work their butts off day in and day out, and they're putting their bodies on the line oftentimes at risk of serious long-term harm. And that's huge. Um, and while they are getting a fair amount of status in return, they're not getting money. Um, and if they complain, they can be tossed away and replaced with someone else. Um, so I do look at the, the type of power that their coaches have over them as a type of coercive power, right? They don't, for instance, football players or basketball players don't just get to transfer. They don't have economic mobility. They can't go to another team easily if a coach decides not to play them or if a coach pushes them to play through an injury. They would have to sit out a year and perhaps lose a full year of eligibility. Like they're all sorts of constraints imposed upon them, including perhaps most important of all, the fact that they can't even profit. They can't run a summer camp in their own name because their brand their name belongs to someone else that's amazing that's amazing so they can't in in the in the summer they can't um you know show up at uh a, be paid for an, an appearance at a summer camp or lend their name to that's absurd isn't it it's really it's really intense <laughs> and it puts a lot of pressure on these kids and these are kids um who for some at least, come from really struggling families and are struggling to support themselves and their families. And they're successful, but they can't wield that success in, in any way in terms of su helping support their families economically. Yeah. And by the way, just to close the loop on something, and Professor, you may know more about this than I do, but I mentioned Ed O'Bannon, who was a, a one-time NBA player, played at UCLA, and he brought a lawsuit against the NCAA, challenging them uh, for making money off of the images of former student athletes for com commercial purposes. He actually won the case, but if I read this correctly, I guess that they it still didn't change the notion that college athletes cannot be paid while they're at college. I don't know, but th I don't suppose that's covered in your in your book, Professor. I, I talk about it yep. briefly. Okay, yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's really. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of ins and outs to the ongoing litigation around these issues. Um, so it's some of the athletes, the former athletes that I interviewed did get a small payout um, from that class action suit. Um, quite small and certainly not much to make a difference. But they did start to end the practice of private companies profiting off of their 
likenesses of video games. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's another one. Can you imagine a, a college player, you know, walking into a dorm room and seeing kids playing video games based on using their likeness, their avatar, and yet they don't make money off of that? So just with respect to college athletes, and I want to talk about the other categories in your book also, but it, it, what's, what is your thought or do you have an opinion? It should the whole um, thing be the whole system be reformed to the extent uh, to the full extent and pay college athletes what some uh, portion of the what the the gate is at a, at a given uh, event or what that's a really good question and I I don't have a definitive vision for how it should be mm-hmm. I do believe that they should be recognized as workers um, I do not think that there should be limits put on their ability to kind of wield their economic success in other arenas, right? They should be able to run camps. They should be able to sign autographs or jerseys and make a buck or two off of that. Um, I'm less sure about kind of the logistics of paying them, but of course, logistics isn't, logistical issues don't prevent the real question about whether they should be pay, paid for their expertise. But what shouldn't be happening is that other people, everyone else, every other entity should be making money off of their backs and they get virtually nothing. Um, also, I would say that we need to kind of put some protections in place for these workers. Their coaches have immense power over them. And that's really kind of the centerpiece of what I talk about in my book. Um, and so that, you know, they can be pressured to major in something they don't want to major in so because it complies with their uh, athletic schedule or they can be pressured into not going to mental health counseling when they desperately need it because it gets in the way of their athletic schedule or they can be pressured to play through injuries and these these workers these athletes have nowhere else to turn they don't have anyone to complain to that's not part of the system that's making money off of them mm-hmm. so there need to be more and more protections in place to protect these kids and these workers um for as people not as athletes for that we can make a buck off of so again you, the the categories of people you looked at prison laborers graduate students welfare workers and we mentioned college athletes um can any of these folks unionize is that an issue um no they, they cannot okay. unionize. <laughs> i mean well in, no, in some institutions, I suppose graduate students can unionize, um, although there have been a number of high-profile cases in private institutions, um, which and their unions have largely been quashed there. Um, but the other groups don't have a legal right to unionize because none of these groups of workers are considered, quote, workers or employees under labor and employment laws. And that means that they don't have a legally protected right to unionize. Mm-hmm. So of, of any of these groups, is there a clear path to fairness? Is there, is there a clear path to reform? Can any of this be fixed? There are certainly um, small fixes that could be put in place that could go a long way. Um, I think for all of them, the true fix requires kind of much broader structural changes. Um, for instance, you know, the right now, one of the founding principles principles of our current welfare system is that um, people need to be coerced into work in order to get any kind of benefit whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And I, I would argue that that structure um, needs to be changed completely. Um, that people, and the founding principle of that is that people won't work unless you make them. That people who apply for welfare are somehow fundamentally lazy. 
Um, and that's just not the case, right? Study after study shows that's not the case. Um, people are desperate for meaningful, um, respectable work. And so forcing them to pick up trash on the side of the highway isn't where it's at, and it's not going to help them find a job, right? It's self-defeating. So I do think that there are kind of big structural um, things that definitely need to be changed to fix these systems, but also smaller changes could go a long way. Um, so for all of these workers, for instance, um, they don't have really the equivalent of like an HR department to complain to when they face problems on the job. Mm-hmm. Um, there is no one looking over their bosses um, and their bosses' actions and how they treat them as if they were bosses, right? Because they're not recognized as workers, their bosses are not recognized as boss bosses. And there's no one kind of regulating their boss's behavior. There's a wide arena for abuse in these labor relations. So, so just basic monitoring, basic grievance procedures. I mean, there are grievance procedures in, in both prisons and welfare, but as they told me, you know, one prisoner said, well, yeah, but you're just grieving the same people who grieved you. Mm. So there isn't kind of a separate entity to which people can turn in times of trouble. This looks like uh, you've written about prison laborers before. Um, by the way, it, again, it's Professor Aaron Hatton at the University of uh, Buffalo, and the book is called Coerced Work Under Threat of Punishment. Um, we find it anywhere we find good books, I take it, Amazon, other places? or yep. Okay. Um, what, has, what interests you about uh, prisons? It seems like you're fascinated by what goes on there. Yeah, sure. Well, I came into this project, you know, I study work and workers. That's my primary concern. Um, And I started this project, I was interested in looking more into those workers who aren't fully protected by labor and employment law. So that was really my point of entry into this project. Um, Now, prisoners, although in some states, including New York State, where I did my research, um, they do get paid for their labor. But they are otherwise totally unprotected by labor employment laws. Like they're just not considered a worker because in in point of fact, they are the sole exception to slavery under the U S constitution, right? right. No one can be forced to work except as punishment for a crime. Mm -hmm. And that's them. And most able-bodied prisoners in the U S are in fact required to work. So they were kind of like the extreme case of workers who can be forced to work, but are not protected as workers under law. And so I wanted to, really just learn more about their experience of working behind bars. Did you, so you, you went um, on site to some of these prisons to, to interview these folks or? I tried, okay. um, <laughs> but that was my original plan. Yep. And I got the green light from my university, you know, review ethics board to do so. But then New York state prison system would not let me in to the prisons mm. um, because my research would not benefit them. I think they mostly put the kibosh on going inside prisons altogether these days as researchers. So what I did was I interviewed people who had just come out of prison mm. about the, the the work they did behind bars. Yeah, um, prisons famously and unsurprisingly are not very welcome to outsiders, including the press. I used to write for a newspaper called Lawyers Weekly in Boston, and I was tailing a a lawyer for the day, which included a visit. He was going to visit one of his clients in a a prison. And I thought this will be very interesting. Now, uh, like an idiot, I didn't call ahead and get all kinds of clearance. I figured I'd just walk in with him. And um, we started taking a few pictures outside of the prison, like pretty at a pretty good distance. But some guy came flying out of the prison, 
pointing at us going, who are you? Who are you? Who gave you permission to be here? Um, eventually, believe it or not, I did get in there to at least uh, observe some of the stuff going on, but very briefly. I was <laughs> I was going to ask you if you had visited uh, Clinton Correctional Facility, which can't be too far from you, which famously was the, the site of the, the break and that is uh, depicted in that the TV show Escape from Danamora. If you haven't seen it, by the way, outstanding. Did you see that? I did not actually. Oh, I come have... on, Professor. <laughs> it's right up your alley. I visited Attica, but not Clinton. Oh, even better. Um, I, I shouldn't take such glee in um, in remembering why Attica is, what Attica is known for. But I actually recently watched a, a documentary about the riot. And man, it was, it's gruesome and heart-wrenching and, and all that. Um, so of those that you that you interviewed, what, what stuck out in, in terms of um, these prison laborers? And um, uh, I mean, was it an existence of frustration? Did they, or what, what kept them going? Was the, the real reason why they were going back because they simply had to, they would prefer not to? Or what was it like? Yeah, well, the thing about prison labor, like, well, really all jobs is that it's not an either or, it's not black or white. It's not all good or all bad. I mean, for many prisoners, being able to do something to occupy the time, especially, most important of all, something that they can find meaning and value in, that's critically important. So on the surface, I'm not an opponent of prison labor. I I think it can be great. But the problem is how it's utilized in um, prisons. It just doesn't give them real skills. The skills don't transfer to the outside or jobs won't accept those as real skills. Um, And it's more like make work. And even more, when it could be potentially good work, their bosses have so much power over them. And some bosses are good. Some bosses are bad. Um, And when they're bad, they're really, really bad. Mm -hmm. They can make their lives hell. So I guess my point is that Prisoners, like all people, had all different types of views of their work. They are a totally heterogeneous group. Um, And they want, for many of them, they want to work and they want meaningful work. Um, But they don't want to be punished. You know, one guy, he um, fell asleep at work one day. He was sick, got in trouble. The next day, the boss thought he had fallen asleep again. He says he didn't. His hat was just low, so the boss thought he was asleep. And the boss wanted him as punishment to clean the floor with a toothbrush. Mm. And for him, that just crossed the line. He wasn't going to do it. And he said, you know what? Take me to the box, which is what they call solitary Mm. confinement. Take me to the box for a month. Um, Cut me off from my family and friends because I'm not doing it. So they, they are willing to work. They want to work in many cases, but they don't want to be treated like trash. Right. Yeah. And um, I misspoke earlier. I I think I posed the question, why do they, keep doing it they well they're in prison i mean they have to and like you said they, they have to so i got confused for a minute there i started thinking about prison employees of course the prison laborers now there's in that of course i always will go back to television so i mentioned that show before escape from Danamora. it's the the two people that you know in real life you know they ultimately escaped and ultimately were hunted down one of them um killed in the process they are depicted as working in the uh, uh, what do you call it uh, linens? No, I don't know. They're so they're working with sewing machines. What do you call that? Oh, uh-huh. uh, anyway, um, but the 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 way the story was told is that was a choice job, and so is like I I presume they don't get to necessarily choose whether they work and and where they work, but 
it sounded the way they positioned it was some some are certainly better than others. And there's a kind of hierarchy there. Is that is that the case? Yes, there's absolutely a hierarchy. Um, in some cases, they certainly have a limited degree of choice. Choice is way too strong a word, but they can put in for a transfer. They can put in a request. Whether or not that request is heated is another question. Right. Um, yeah, so the vast majority of prisons work in like basic prison maintenance. So they're working in the mess hall. They're yeah. working in laundry services. They're picking up, um, they're doing landscaping or uh, shoveling snow or mowing the lawns. Um, so it's like basic prison upkeep. And really, though, they keep the prisons running because mm. if they didn't do all of that work, you, they would have to hire civilians at, um, I don't know, 100 times the wages right. because these prisoners are earning, at least in New York State, they're earning between 10 and 33 cents an hour for that type of work. Mm. Um, so then there are, the more, there are some more choice jobs. They, there are prison factories where they make stuff, um, most often for like New York State government agencies, hospitals, schools, um, and so on. And so they're making road signs and the grills for the public parks and linens for prisoners to wear and sleep on and right. so on. License plates? Um, those do, they pay more. do they actually make license plates? Uh, <laughs> I believe myth? they do. Maybe, they, maybe it's not a myth. Yeah. Um, so um, let me, let's, uh, we're up against the clock a little bit here, Professor Hatton. By the way, people must mistake you for the character on The Office, whose name is Aaron Hannon, who I keep wanting to say. No? Does that ever come up? Um, I don't know if that's come up before, but that's fine. <laughs> you're an, well, she's a wonderful actress whose name escapes me at the moment. But anyway, the char- the character's name is Aaron Hannon. And um, yeah, uh it's uh you're an academic i wouldn't expect you to uh you know uh know something so trivial you we're talking about important things here professor so anyway i'm used to i'm I'm used to talking too much about tv and movies and stuff anyway uh once again coerced is the name of the book and uh professor hatton you're you're such a good sport for for joining us what was what was your biggest before we get to um our good stuff segment and then we'll be out of here in a moment what was uh the thing that surprised you most or the thing you, you um you know, were most enlightened to discover in the, in the research of your book? Yeah, huh, that's a great question. I mean, really, I didn't set out to study labor coercion with this book. The, so the whole yeah. centerpiece of the book came as a bit of surprise. I just, like I said, was interested in workers who weren't protected by labor laws and how they experienced their work, how they conceptualize the work, if they face problems at work. But the whole book took a dramatic turn when really what emerged as the front story was the power that their bosses wielded over them and how shitty their lives um, could be made by their bosses on the job. And also, I mean, I know it sounds kind of wacky, but um, the comparisons between like grad students and prisoners, again, they're not the same, not by a long shot, but their bosses do wield the same kind of expansive power. And I think that is really the one, the most surprising finding from this. Yeah. um, It's, I, I want to read your book now because I because although you're writing about some some heavy stuff and maybe ultimately sort of um, unfortunate and uh, and sort of depressing stuff almost really that these these problems that you know this this dynamic that that can't be fixed in an instant and these people that are working you know almost against their will um, but um, but fascinating fascinating stuff so um, 
Before we uh, close out the show, let me take one minute to tell you about what we do at pod617.com, the Boston Podcast Network. Would you like your own podcast? Now is actually a good time to start one. We'll produce a podcast for you. We'll send you out a quality USB microphone. You can get started right away. All the information you need is at pod617.com. And if you'd like to be a guest on this show, just shoot me an email. David at pod617.com is where you go. But before we depart, we will play uh, one round of good stuff. Oh, that's the good stuff. All right. All right well, we, I mean, we got to end on a high note. We've been talking about some heavy stuff here, Professor. So, um, Tell us, do you have a tip for our listeners, something that has helped you get through the pandemic, whatever that may be? Oh, goodness. Well, this is incredibly random. Okay. But my mood really took a turn for the better when I randomly started making things out of paper mache. Oh, I like it. I like it. Do you Why? Have I don't know. And specifically, <laughs> I started making cacti. <laughs> I never would have guessed cacti. Is that yeah? Me so, neither. So, so um, this is this is very interesting to me because I like making stuff. In during this quarantine, a lot of people I talk to are doing things like that. Can you actually build something? I've been making silly videos to show to my my uh, parents uh, and my family on our Sunday night calls. At least it's something. My uh, Cousins and I, we did a scene from The Godfather, but the pandemic version. So the, all the characters were in on, in Zoom boxes wearing masks, and uh, Michael Corleone has to shoot up at one of the the, the Zoom boxes to kill his his enemies. Anyway, um, but so and, and other people like doing jigsaw puzzles, and I think like why are you like I, I don't see the fascination of jigsaw puzzles. But the person says well, it's kind of idle and it kind of keeps you calm, and you are building something even if it's just a puzzle. But so. You wh- okay? Why cacti? First of all, let's start with that. Um, did, did you that start building something else, and it turned out to look like a cactus? No, no, no. <laughs> okay. It was entirely. I've made now five cacti. Wow! It was entirely by design. But why? I have no idea. Wow! You're you're like the Richard Dreyfus character in Close Encounters. You don't know why. There's there's cacti in your future somewhere. You're going to be like um, yeah. having some adventure in a desert or something. Do you paint them afterwards? Yep. They're, okay. they're in pots. I can send you a picture. They're in pots, yes. little rocks, cacti painted. They've got little spikes. Yep. Well, that's fascinating. I, that, that's one of the best answers I've gotten. So, so, <laughs> so thank you, <laughs> Professor. Um, I will make a recommendation for a, like a family-friendly TV show. If you've run out of things to binge, here's a tip. There's a show called Magic for Humans. It's a dude named Justin Willman, and he, he just he's like a street musician magician he's got a sense of humor but he does all kinds of things that will make they really are amazing and you know we know magic isn't real well i don't know is it but um for example he goes to one of these king arthur fairs type things this was all shot pre-pandemic needless to say but he goes and he'll go up to some people and he'll say what are you drinking there and the, the guy says oh i'm having a little bit of beer and this magician, Justin, will take a, a bottle, like a, a regular water bottle, like Dasani or, or whatever you know brand you got there, and he starts pouring the water out in an empty cup. And as soon as the water is coming out of the bottle, 
it is turning into beer and he hands it to the guy and it is beer. And then he turns to a woman and said, what would you like? She says wine. And he does the same thing and it blows my mind and I need to know how he did that. But anyway, it's good. <laughs> if you're looking for something light, it's on Netflix, magic for humans. Uh, there are three seasons and, um, yeah, check it out. That's what I got. So, um, professor Hatton, I hope you had a good time. I thank you for being a good sport and, um, well, so, you, you know, you're, you're, uh, as we like to say in the Boston area, you're wicked smart. Um, what's your, what's your, what's your prediction, if at all, as to when life gets back to normal? Oh, goodness. Um, I, I, for normal, normal, I'm going to give us a year. Okay. A year. Yeah. Um, and really damn it that's too long <laughs> sorry <laughs> well you're a good person to ask this is what you study i mean you, you you study the way people interact um and so you think it'll, it'll be a slow return um is it gonna are there gonna be just weird moments over the night even even if even though people are allowed to go to places are there gonna be weird moments where people are darting away from each other or some such thing well, you know, the, the terrain is changing so fast. So it could be that if we discover that masks are really just as incredibly effective as they might actually be, right. then maybe we're all, we will be back to normal wearing masks. And right. if that's, that's normal enough, then that's pretty solid. Yeah. Or maybe, you know, uh, I mean, they're talking about a vaccine coming out amazingly soon. So all of those things could definitely happen. All right. Well, um, I hope it happens sooner than later, but... We will endure. We are a strong people, I hope, as long as the liquor stores remain open. I mean, as long as we all um, stick to our guns. I hope you had fun, Professor Hatton. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me. This was great. All right. Thank you. And thank you for listening. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your podcast. Go to pod617.com if you want your own podcast. And on behalf of Professor Aaron Hatton, my name is Dave. I'm just a guy from Boston. But if you're not from Boston... You must be the other guy. Have a great day, everybody.